Welcome to UFO Think Tank Radio with your host, Alejandro Lopez. Hi, this is Alejandro. Thank you to Robochick for my introduction. And uh, yeah, like she says, this is UFO Think Tank. And I am Alejandro Rojas, and I'm very happy to be here with you today. Because you're cool, dude. I'm telling you, I'm not kidding. Uh, You're one cool dude or dudette that is listening. So cool that you are interested in people such as my guest this evening, who is a very interesting, I'm I'm excited, as, as usual, to have Kathleen Martin on. And what's so exciting is that Kathleen has done a study. She actually did this uh, with her friend, Denise Stoner. And um, this study is, well... Kathleen Martin, first, I guess to tell you, is uh, unique because her mother or her aunt was Betty Hill of the famous Betty and Barney Hill abduction case in the 60s. And this was the first real public um, story of, of people being abducted. And it was a very credible one because these guys were separated. You know, it was a... Um, man and his wife and uh they were separated and told the same story they had similar recollections under hypnosis which is interesting and also lends credibility uh so a very interesting case of course we've had Kathleen on to talk about that case and other things before so we won't need to get into all of those details but what is especially exciting, uh, something that she has done recently that I want to talk about, is this uh, study she did with Denise Stoner. And essentially, uh, Kathleen Martin for many years has been a, a social worker. So, uh, of course, you need to be familiar with psychology and things like that. And she, in your social work, you know, you're you're kind of figuring out. you you got to follow studies and the latest in psychology to kind of figure out why people do what they do. And so she applied her, her background in social work. Um, Denise has a background uh, in that area as well. To do a study on abductees because she feels, you know, the abduction phenomena is real. What happened to Betty and Barney Hill was real. And she wanted to find out uh, the commonalities. And that's what this study was called, uh, the commonality among abduction experiencers study. Very interesting findings. So essentially she pulled a bunch of people that were abductees. She had some controls, people who were not abductees. We'll talk about how she decided if someone was really an abductee or not and what an abductee is and on, on that kind of thing. We'll talk to her about uh, because, you know, of course, some of you might be thinking, I don't know if I believe that people are being abducted by aliens. Of course, many of you are thinking, I know that's happening. So um, uh, you'll be able to hear at least because I think even if you don't believe in the phenomena, just the social aspects of how are these people that say this is happening to them similar than people who are not. 
and uh, what are the uh, tendencies. Now, she did a different thing than like uh, what Dr. Leo Sprinkles did in the past. He actually did a similar study, and he found, uh, which was one of his main goals, that um, – and I th- we had someone else, actually, another professor uh, on recently, and they had found that people who claimed to be abductees were not more prone to fantasy uh, than the normal uh, general public. But uh, yet – this is a really interesting study, and I love this sort of thing because this is what people need to be doing, you know. Um, I even – I won't name names, but there's a lot of uh, researchers out there who have been collecting data, and uh, I think this is a great example of what you need to do with that data is actually put it together and do some studies, um, run some correlations uh, to find out, you know, what's going on here, what's going on. What's going on? La, 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 la. Sorry. Uh, I won't sing to you any further. But this is a great interview, and you're going to love it, people. I'm telling you, this is good stuff. So we'll talk to Kathleen in just a minute. However, of course, before we get her on the line, we have UFO news. Alejandro Rojas. So let's check this out. Of course, this is a collection of stories from mainstream media covering the UFO topic. People are like, what are you talking about? Media don't care about UFOs. And a lot of people feel that way, even uh, people who are interested in this field. But that's just not the case because I prove you wrong every week in that I have a host of UFO stories from the the, uh, public, from the mainstream media. That I cover every week. And let's talk about some of those stories. The first being from October 31st, Halloween, scary. Uh, this is from the Sun News. And it looks like it was reran in the HeraldOnline.com, serving York, Chester, and Lancaster counties of South Carolina. And this is about some sightings at Myrtle Beach. So I guess on uh, September 13th, there were a lot of sightings of some orange lights over the ocean, and people thought this was weird. They were turning on, they were turning off. There was one, and there were several, and it was uh, freaking people out. So somebody posted a uh, video on YouTube about this. They also reported this to the UFO, the, the National UFO Reporting Center, New Fork, in other words, ran by Peter Davenport of Seattle, Washington. And he says uh, they don't seem to be flares because uh, they don't act like that. So there were a lot of sightings. They asked the military, well, what do you think? And the military said, well, they were flares. So, yeah, the Coast Guard actually um, said, well, I think they were probably flares because we do have boats out there that are sending up flares. Um, However, he describes some of these flares. Some of them can be seen up to 50 nautical miles away and be in the air for about 120 seconds. Um, Some of them last less than that. 
But uh, really, actually, the reports don't necessarily sound – at least some of the people said they, they felt that the lights were in the sky for much longer than that. So many of those who reported these sightings uh, don't believe what they saw to be flares. So very interesting. They also interviewed a man named Jim Meath, who has not seen a UFO. However, he is a guy who lives in North Carolina who holds a UFO workshop. So he's into the topic. And uh, he says, you know what? I, I'm not a – I haven't seen anything, but I've studied enough where there's so much interesting material out there, such as people in the military talking about UFOs, that I think there could be something going on here. He um, uh, talks about, you know, how there's got to be life out there. And another witness uh, had an interesting quote. He says, I believe in God to start with. I just can't see us being created and nothing else out there in this big old universe. A lot of people feel similarly. So remember, you can see these stories if you go to ufodailynews.com and click on the UFO news feed. Because those are the stories that I tweet on a regular basis. You can also, of course, go and subscribe to the UFO Daily News Twitter feed. Speaking of one of the dudes I tweet quite a bit, this is, of course, Lee Spiegel, who writes for the Huffington Post. And uh, we, because we're always talking back and forth and sharing information, came across a story. Actually, it was Ruben Uriarte, who is our, the MUFON national international director well liaison so he works with other countries and he got this from mexico uh that was the first time i saw it and this is a video of a weird light that looks kind of like a cigar shaped light diving into a volcano in mexico and this is a video that's on mexican news in fact on youtube and on lee's story you can see uh, the clip, uh, the YouTube clip of the Mexican news story. Uh, and he also asked a couple of people. He asked uh, Factor Faked, uh, Ben Hansen, and uh, MUFON's uh, video analyst, Mark D'Antonio, what they thought about the video. And both of them had actually felt, which some other people had speculated, that it's actually a meteorite being caught on the video that is far behind the volcano. It just looks like it's going in, but it's actually falling somewhere past the volcano. So interesting, but it's an interesting video. Of course, not everybody agrees, but nobody, not everybody agrees on any video. But uh, yeah, they kind of felt that it could be a meteorite uh, behind the object. So you'll have to check out this video. And remember, you can go, this one's on Huffington Post, uh, one of the Lee Spiegel stories. More UFOs, this time in El Cajon, California. And these were, there's a picture of these interesting lights in a row. And you know what? I look at it and I'm like, you know what? It looks like those LED strips because it's like this line of bright lights, uh, uh, like the LED strips that you put under your cabinets, you know, to um, shine light on your, your uh, kitchen surfaces so you can make dinner. Uh, or like, I you know, I eat veggie stuff, so I make like, you know, my regular dinners kind of uh, egg salad actually is a big one. Or mostly, actually, it's, it's cereal. So you can have your lights to see your cereal. 
And it turns out that this is what this was. It was a gentleman who was kind of uh, playing around, and he actually had spent $300 on balloons, heliums, and lights. And he floated them 5,000 feet into the air. Uh, He put these lights on a fishing line, and he called it a TFO because his name was Todd. So, kind of cute. But, uh, yeah. That's what he did, and that's what those. So, if you were in El Cajon, California, and it looks like this was, well, the story they don't say exactly when this was. The story was on the first, but I'll bet this happened the night before on Halloween that he was pulling this stunt. But I gotta admit, come on, it is kind of fun. I that would have been fun to do. Put these, and it's Halloween for goodness sake. You want to do lots of fun, crazy stuff, and then run around this running circles on the street, screaming with your arms in the air, UFO, UFO, you know, that'd be fun. I, that's something I'd like to do. Only on Halloween, though. Uh, other mistaken identities, perhaps. I think it was last week I told you guys about this interesting video from Kentucky of this tubular-type UFO. It looked, uh, the witness described it as two fluorescent tubes Floating next to each other. Very strange video. This guy was a amateur astronomer. Well, somebody, and it just looks like some neighbor or some somebody in town said, that was my toy. But uh, some people are putting into question whether or not that's true. Because I guess there are out there, and you can look these up. And actually, I think I saw them in the U.K., uh, let's see what they're named. He doesn't have the name on here. Some kind of airship, it's called. But essentially, really, it, what it is, is like this long plastic bag. And it is black. And you can fill it with helium, or you can... It's Actually, you fill it with air. Oh, okay, I remember, because I went to the site where you can buy them. You run, you know, you open this thing up, you run so it fills with air, and you tie it up. And then you put a string on it, and it comes with a string, and you just kind of let it float. And because it's black, it's solar-powered, the heat uh, from that's generated heats up the air inside of this thing, so it floats, because hot air rises. It's less dense. Some science. And so that's what this thing is. And uh, so some people are like, okay, well, uh, it is long cylindrical tubular balloon thing that you float up, but they're black. They're like a black film that is um, not see-through. And in the video, this thing looks see-through and or completely white. Could it be the reflection? Could it be two of them side by side? Is that what made this video? I don't know. I don't know. When I posted the story saying that, you know, this guy said it was this his little airship toy thing, people are like, mm, I don't think so, dude. Uh, and their argument was that, you know, it didn't, it wasn't a black thing that he videotaped up in the sky. And even if it was reflecting, it was more than just one long tube. It looked like a couple of them next to each other, and it looked like some kind of, it looked strange. And uh, the astronomer estimated it was 30,000 feet in the air, so... He could be wrong. All I can say is, like I said before, and unfortunately what we have to come down to many times is 
Go take a look for yourself and see what you think. Toy or not a toy? That is the question. I thought this was kind of fun. Uh, Roswell, although it's kind of weird, because, of course, you know, everybody does these Halloween things, these spooky Halloween things. And so this was a story about a website called TripAdvisor, which made a list of the top 10 spookiest cities in the United States. I can't think of what the spookiest city I've been to is. Hmm, that's a tough one. But they say Roswell. Now, I've been to Roswell, and it's not too spooky. But, of course, they have pictures of aliens, and their point is Roswell is spooky because... That's where aliens landed, and aliens are probably there. And if you go to Roswell, they'll come and they'll chase you and and they'll slime you and be really creepy. And so that's why it's scary, uh, is what they say. So, um, yeah, Roswell made it to the top ten list of spooky places. The next story is an interesting one that you've seen around, and this is more of an astrobiological type of thing. And this is alien life. Uh, this is uh, something that some, as they would say in the UK, science boffins, they call them boffins. It reminds me of a, a hobbit, the boffin hobbit family or something. But no, those are scientists, according to English people out there, I guess. But the boffins are saying that, uh, some science boffin, that alien life requires an asteroid belt like ours. So that the asteroid belt we have in our solar system is very rare, they say. And it's probably why Earth has life, because it's been able to gently sprinkle asteroids with water and elements that are important for life onto the planet Earth as opposed to larger objects slamming into the planet, causing massive explosions and not being very constructive, not being very helpful. But these nice little asteroids falling onto the planet here and there are seeding water, oh, in just a gentle little way. And that that creates life, I guess. Of course, you never know um, with this kind of stuff, but... uh, yeah, it kind of made a story around that uh, maybe you need an asteroid belt in order to have life in your solar system. So any of you out there in other solar systems who are like, uh, you know, like, why don't we have an abundance of life in our solar system? It could be that you don't have an asteroid belt, so you'll want to get one of those and everything will be good after that. UFO news from India, and we don't hear a lot about this. Of course, we've had others on, we've talked about um, official kind of UFO investigations in other countries, uh, but who knew? India, these soldiers um, and police and guys have been investigating UFOs. So on the Indo-Tibetan border in a town called Ladakh, I'm sure I'm saying that wrong, but that's what it I think it is how you say it, Ladakh region. Uh, since August to October, they've been seeing UFOs a lot in this area. And uh, some of the police have actually taken pictures of these UFOs. And uh, in fact, 
according to India Today, this article is actually in the Daily Bhaskar, but uh, they say India Today has also covered this story, that the Army has photographed the pictures, and they say that these pictures don't appear to be drones or, or low-Earth orbiting satellites. So they then took these pictures to some astronomers, in particular the Indian Astronomical Observatory at Hanley. And these guys looked at them, you know, and what astronomers usually say, oh, you're looking at Venus. Nah, not these guys. These guys said, well, I don't think that is a celestial object. In other words, that's not a meteorite or a planet or a star, so we don't know what that is. Uh, then... Uh, they took it to a few other, there are some intelligence officers who said, well, I think this is China messing with us. They're thinking that these are maybe some kind of Chinese device. Uh, they even said it could be a crude psychological operation on China's part or sophisticated probes uh, attempting to ascertain India's defenses in Ladakh. But, uh, yeah, some UFOs being seen. And I guess this is a very kind of treacherous and, and um, sparsely populated area where there aren't a lot of people. But that uh, some strangeness and UFOs are reported in this area quite often. How they even The Army even took a mobile ground radar to the mountaintop near so that the next time they saw a craft to try to catch it on radar or, or one of these objects, and uh, when they did see the objects, they could see them, but they did not catch them on radar. So is this a new hot spot? What's going down here in uh, the Indo-Tibetan border? Very interesting, I think. Very interesting. Speaking of satellites, one of the biggest satellites in the sky or the biggest uh, objects in the sky is a space station. You may have seen the space station coasting over your area of the planet. And because this is a international, we have international listeners. How cool is that on the show? And so your part of the planet is very different from mine. But I hope you're enjoying your part of the planet as much as I enjoy my part of the planet. And I particularly enjoy when the space shuttle flies over and I've seen it a couple times and it's just so cool because it's so bright and big and cruising over and just to think oh that's a space space station I met you know there's people up there and they're kind of hanging out and you know who I think about what are they doing are they grooving out to some p-funk up there on the space station and you know um I don't know what you think about but it's fun to see the space station and if you haven't seen it then this is tragic, and you are not fulfilling your duty as a human being uh, because you're supposed to be just captivated in awe by our incredible technology. That's what I say. But anyway, uh, what NASA has done is created this new site where you can get an email or a text when the space station is going to be near your area. So a couple areas Hours before it comes, you'll get a text, you know, Hi, this is a space station. I'll be in your neighborhood in two hours. Be sure to look for me. Um, Ta-ta for now. T-T-F-N. You know, that's what you do when you text the acronyms and stuff. 
Actually, I don't know if that's what it'll say. I did sign up for the text, but I haven't gotten a text from the space station yet because it hasn't been around my neighborhood yet. But I am so excited for when I get that text because I'm going to run outside and look, and and then I'm going to text back the space station and say, OMG, I see you. And that'll be a lot of fun. So I would recommend, yeah, again, you can go to ufodailynews.com and go to the news feed uh, and look for this story. Get email text when Space Station is near. Uh, Discovery News is the name of the story. Or you could probably go to NASA or Google this thing and find it. But it's a lot of fun. I'm excited to hear from the Space Station. Ooh, this next story made some people mad. Ooh, my friends got mad when they read this one. Why? Because it says UFO enthusiasts admit the truth may not be out there after all. And this is written by The Telegraph. This is a shifty little UK newspaper. Well, they're not little. They're big. I'll tell you what. But yeah, they have been um, quite contentious when it comes to the UFO phenomena. And essentially, it is kind of silly because, so they talk to this group that investigates UFOs in England called ASAP. And these guys, the Association for the Scientific Study of Anomalous Phenomena. And they're like, you know what? We've been looking for UFOs for a decade. We're not getting many reports. And even the reports we get don't really give us anything scientific to investigate. So I think we're going to have a conference. We're going to talk about this, but I think we're closing shop, and we're going to tell our other UFO buddies, let's kind of call this a day and then wrap this whole thing up because there's nothing going on. Fine. They have their opinions, and the writer kind of does go on to say, oh, yeah, there hasn't been anything going on for a long time. La, la, la. we got to shut it down. They did have Nick Pope at the end say, hey, wait a minute. Um, Actually, there is a lot of uh, quality information out there that's being overlooked. So that's kind of cool. And uh, essentially saying, don't, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because there's some bad stuff doesn't mean it's all um, bad data. Which, of course, many people feel. And this, of course, got my buddies all upset. And they're emailing, well, these guys are a bunch of jerks, man. So, um, but the point is that that isn't true. That, in fact, at least when it comes to, if you ask Peter Davenport of New Fork, who I asked before, I know he's gotten more UFO sightings in the recent past. So has MUFON, uh, you know, gotten a lot of UFO sightings, you know, hundreds a month. So, certainly not true that there is a decrease in the sightings and this telegraph reporter named Jasper Coping could have gone to some of the big reporting centers and asked them if that was indeed the case but he decided not to he didn't do his journalistic duty which many of these reporters do not do when they're covering this topic bad Jasper but, um, you know, hopefully he'll do that next time. And his his title was just a little overblown. UFO enthusiasts admit the truth may not be out there. That's kind of overdoing it, buddy. But um, I can, you know, hey, these guys have their opinion. They're closing shop. I think that's interesting news because they don't feel they found anything. That's their right. Finally, uh, this kind of falls in line with the last story is that super fast space travel would kill you 
in minutes, according, according to this uh, Jamie Conlife. So more boffins. This was on Gizmodo, actually, saying that, uh, you know, traveling that fast is not good for your health. If you do so, you will die. And okay. Uh, but of course, he is saying that, you know, uh, in order to travel really fast, we'd have to go near the speed of light because we can't go the speed of light. Uh, if we did, we'd go back in time, time warps and all this stuff. But of course, um, some people argue that perhaps there is a uh, technology that is much different that uh, will allow us to travel great distances in short amount of times and we won't die. And that would be preferable than the type that kills you, I think. So there's the UFO news for the week. But now let's get Kathleen on the phone because she has a lot of interesting things to say. Hello, Kathleen. Hello, Alejandro. It's nice to be back with you. So uh, we were meant talking a little bit before, but it sounds like uh, the hurricane luckily didn't hit you too hard. So you didn't. You're in Florida. Um, yeah, so you were able we to were stay scared. dry. Yeah, Central I'll bet. Florida had a, uh, just a, a little bit of wind. There were a few white caps on my little lake, but it wasn't bad at all. Yeah, thank goodness, because of course uh, others have not had it so well. No, they certainly have not. My friends in the Northeast have uh, been hard hit by this. Mm-hmm. And you do a lot of traveling, right? Uh, were you planning on any trips to the Northeast and? I just actually returned home from the Northeast. I do do a, a lot of traveling. I spent three months up there over oh. the summer, and uh, I'm back home. In fact, I we did have to cancel a trip that I was going to be going on this weekend to the Northeast, come to think of it, but uh, it's having to be postponed for a couple mm-hmm. of weeks. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm really excited, and there's a lot to this, so I'm sure we're going to have a lot to talk about, is uh, this abduction study you did. And for anybody who doesn't remember, um, you know, you, uh, your aunt was Betty Hill, and of course, so you've had this big part of your life, abductions and everything, um, with the popularity of her story. And a lot of people, I guess, don't know that even though she had that event, uh, with Barney Hill, that uh, the kind of strangeness continued throughout her life. Is that correct? That is correct. There were many UFO sightings, close encounters, and I think from reading her files, uh, there were continuing abductions as well, but she never wanted to believe that that was true. Mm-hmm. So now you've got this study, and we can talk about the commonalities. And I don't know that there's another study that has been done like this, because, of course, there's there's a lot of anecdotal information you can talk to, uh, which I've had on, you know, like a, a lot of the therapists who, who work with uh, abductees. And there's some kind of commonalities you can gather, but, of course, there's nothing as important as a, an actual uh, study the only other one I think can think of is is Dr. Leo Sprinkle. He had done one uh, quite some time ago. So Eddie this... Bullard has done some as well, mm-hmm. um, but uh, I'm not aware of anyone who has specifically done what Denise and I did on this study. Mm-hmm. 
So how did you hook up with Denise? We'll start from the beginning, I guess. And uh, what gave you the, the idea? What, how, how did this all begin? Well, when I moved to Florida three years ago, I decided to become actively involved in MUFON, Florida. And Denise was a state section director and the, Florida's chief investigator. Now, she was holding meetings. And so I just decided to go to one of her meetings, and I, I replied to an invitation. And uh, that's when I met her for the first time, and I continued to go to her meetings. She has a study group for abduction experiencers as well, and I've been there helping her out at all of those meetings. So uh, we just formed a friendship because of our mutual interests. She's really very bright, very knowledgeable uh, about this field, and I, I have a great deal of respect for her work. Uh, she is now Florida's Assistant Director of Abduction Studies. Mm -hmm. And she has a background, I guess, in psychology, which I'm sure helped you with planning how to put this study together. Yes, she had uh, worked for the government. She had taken some courses in psychology. She does not have a degree in psychology. I'm actually the one with the background in okay. uh, sociology and psychology. Right. I, I took my degree in social work to make myself employable, but uh, my real interest was in social research and psychology. Okay. So then you went about... What was, I guess, the the plan for your study? Were you looking for anything in particular or just kind of trying to look at general overall uh, uh, experiences that these people were having to look for commonalities? Well, there were certain things that stood out in our minds. Um, and so we wanted to determine the percentage of experiencers who have had those specific things occur in their lives. Um, we also wanted to put in some questions that we thought probably wouldn't apply to experiencers, uh, just as a filler. Uh, and also, we, of course, had a control group. So we had questions for the control group as well. Mm-hmm. When it comes to the questions um, that you thought would not pertain to their experiences, is there a, perfect, a specific purpose to adding those type of questions? Yes, there was. Um, we just wanted to make sure that people, uh, everyone would answer honestly and not think that uh, if they uh, responded with a positive or in the affirmative, to each question, it would mean that they were an abduction experiencer. So we're sort of trying to weed people out here as well. Mm -hmm. And we had some really amazing results because, boy, it appears that everyone who took part in this study was answering very honestly. Mm -hmm. Now you looked for, it looks like, uh, 50 uh, full questionnaires to be filled out by experiencers to find those experiencers, did you look for people who kind of had, um, who felt themselves to be experiencers, or did you look for therapists to kind of guide you? Uh, how did I you find them? I didn't look for therapists. What mm -hmm. what we did 
is uh, I was looking for self-identified abduction experiencers, but also many experiencers who had had their case investigated and who met the criteria for having had an abduction Hmm. took part in the study. So I was really delighted in that. And uh, we started out, uh, I wrote an article for the MUFON Journal attempting to solicit experiencers. I do radio shows on a fairly regular basis, and so I always mentioned that on the radio show and asked people to go to my website to fill out the questionnaire. Um, And uh, also, we posted it, uh, Denise did some and I did some as well, on various uh, UFO and abduction-related websites and blogs. So we tried to get as many people as we could. And then I traveled to speak quite frequently, so I always had questionnaires on my table, too, and asked anyone who might be interested in, in taking one and filling it out. Mm-hmm. Now, and I remember last time you were on, we had talked about that, too, and sent people to fill out the questionnaires. So it sounds like this was a lot of work then, getting the questionnaires, but also qualifying these people. Oh, absolutely. It was a lot of work. It took a year. This mm-hmm. was a year-long project. So, uh, But I think that it was well worth the effort. Something else that we did is we guaranteed anonymity for everyone. So if anyone sent me a form with identifying information, I immediately blacked it out um, as soon as I printed forms, uh, before I printed the forms, that I received via email, I removed identifying information because I I didn't want to take a chance that anyone's identity would ever be revealed. Mm-hmm. Right. And then another thing, I don't think, we, I'm not sure, I don't think we mentioned this yet, is that you did have a control group too. You had 25 non-abduction experiencers that you had fill out your questionnaire. Yes, absolutely. And uh, I... I did that because I wanted to make sure that the abduction experience, commonalities among abduction experiencers were not common in the general population. Mm-hmm. So I had to have the control group for that reason. Mm-hmm. I guess moving on to the demographics, I'm kind of just going through your study part by part. Um, it says you, you found twice as many women as men that completed the questionnaire. Um, what did that tell you? Well, that was very interesting. Uh, 64% of the people who completed the questionnaire were women. Uh, and so then I had to uh, evaluate this. Were there more women abduction experiencers? And general general knowledge is that, yes, there are. Um, I also knew that men, uh, statistically, are less likely to fill out questionnaires than women. Hmm. So I had to evaluate whether or not that might come into play here. But fortunately, I had the control group. And 64% of the men who complete who were non-abduction experiencers completed the questionnaire. So there was a, you know, just the opposite uh, uh, as with experiencers. Oh, that's kind of strange, huh? 
Yes, it was. It was really interesting that it ended up being that way. Yeah, because one thing when you were talking about that I was thinking of is maybe these women, because you were a woman, had a better rapport, and that's why they were more likely to fill out the the questionnaire. However, using the um, control, that doesn't necessarily play out. That uh, No, it did not. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were far more men than women. So you think that this may uh, just be another indicator that women uh, experience abductions more than men? It seems it looks that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's pretty interesting. So, and it then is. you went on to look at trends among age, age groups, and what did you find there? Among age groups, I found that uh, the fifty to sixty year old group, those people who were born in the nineteen fifties, uh, responded at a much higher rate than any other group, they, uh, 44% on this survey. And it was only 20% for the control group. So that was very interesting as well. And what Denise and I have found recently is that many, many of the people who are coming forward and contacting us are in that age range. Now, another interesting thing is that many of these people feel that they were taken as children. So that would mean that they were taken probably uh, in the mid to late 1950s going into the 1960s. And so we know that uh, the first publicized UFO abduction was my aunt and uncle's case in 1961, and then uh, we had the Antonio Villasboas case from Brazil, and I believe that was 1957. So uh, sort of when some adults were being taken in those years, it seems that a lot of children were being taken as well. Mm-hmm. See, and that, to me, makes a lot of sense, and that's really interesting because I've always felt as... I got involved with investigating what in like the late 90s, uh, you know, when I joined MUFON and I used to talk to abductees or and I was skeptical of the whole thing at first. I still don't know what to make of it, but I, I was able to talk with a lot of people that had some really interesting cases. But it seemed to die down and looking at the research, it does seem like there was a period there. There was a peak um, starting, like you said, in the 50s and 60s and kind of ended um, in the early 2000s, it kind of seems. Did, do you feel that way? Did your study maybe um, yes, demonstrate that? Absolutely. And and these people in their 50s and 60s, and even some going in from their 60s to 70s, are reporting ongoing abduction experiences. Mm-hmm. But far, far fewer people are contacting us, to say, young people, to say that they are currently being visited. It's really interesting, I think, too. I think that's really important. That's why these studies are really important, because looking at the numbers, you can possibly then at least start to paint a picture of that, perhaps if this was some sort of program, that it began in the 50s and kind of was at its peak then, and, and it's kind of then deteriorated, that this was... You got a picture that maybe this uh, whatever program happened had a, had a lifespan that is ending. 
It seems that perhaps it is winding down. Mm-hmm. And that's really, I think that's really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, I can't guarantee it, but it, it certainly, mm-hmm. the statistics make it appear that way. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully that'll give some people some peace of mind. Because mm-hmm. I know, uh, like, uh, a lot of people I talk to, my sister, for instance, get uh, very afraid of uh, just thinking about things like this. Yes. A lot, it frightens a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So then when you looked at um, areas of uh, where people were from, rural, small town, suburban, you looked at that sort of thing, um, parts of the country... Um, did you find any trends that way? Not really. There were, it was 30% uh, from a rural area, but 26% from uh, small towns, 26 from suburban areas, and 18% from urban areas. So it was uh, really fairly evenly distributed. Mm-hmm. Which kind of makes sense because uh, at least, you know, from the researchers, because, of course, that's where you and I get to see each other at these conferences and, and from listening to the different lectures and, and speaking with them, interviewing them, there doesn't seem to be – I've never heard anybody talk about a trend as part as a geographic uh, trend as to where things like this happen. Um, it seems to be spread pretty evenly spread throughout the country. Yes, it does seem to be that way. And it was interesting initially, I you know, we asked uh, what time zone people were lived in. And we had a far greater percentage from the eastern time zone, 66%. And so we were wondering, gee, you know, is 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 there a base under the Atlantic Ocean uh why such a high number? But then we found out that that wasn't statistically significant because in the control group, 80% were from the eastern United States. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it just appears to be that uh, people in the east heard the radio shows probably uh, that that we interviewed on. Uh, We we do more in the eastern United States, Mm -hmm. I think probably because... Uh, it's pretty late out in California when they uh, when they do their radio interviews here. Mm-hmm. You know, so we tend to go for the ones in the uh, within our time zones. See, that's interesting, and thank goodness for your control group, or else you might have been uh, steered in the wrong direction. Absolutely, that was so important. Mm-hmm. So that is really interesting, and uh, you know what I find fascinating is uh, especially because uh, most of the the years I've spent, at least when I was working with abductees and researching those kind of cases, was in Denver, and it was in urban environments. And that's what I find fascinating. Of course, there were some cases in in, um, rural areas, but, you know, these highly populated urban environments um, where these people you know, report these strange things happening in the middle of a busy neighborhood. Not like Betty Hill, Betty and Barney, who were out, they were out kind of in, in the middle of nowhere, I mean. But people, like, you know, in a big, busy neighborhood in an urban area, you know, being taken in the middle of the night or seeing craft. And uh, 
that just fascinates me because I find at least a couple of these cases to be pretty strong. Absolutely. I do find it fascinating as well uh, that, and, and pretty nervy of these ETs to, to go into a very large metropolitan area to take people. Um, you know, how do they disguise themselves? We know that they were caught uh, when they, they went to New York City to take Linda Cortilla. So, uh, mm-hmm. And maybe you could talk about that case for a minute, because that was a woman who was, I believe, uh, seen being taken from a skyscraper. Is that what was? Yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And, and there were several witnesses to her being taken from the skyscraper that she lived in. And uh, people on the bridge, uh, their, their cars, the motors in their cars died. And do you know what they thought? They thought that they were watching a movie being made at night. Mm. They had no idea that it was a real abduction uh, in, in process. And that's exactly what was happening. Linda was being taken. Now, did you run across any other cases in urban areas where there were other witnesses uh, to uh, people being taken? Mm, boy, not that I can remember off the top of my head. Yeah, I have not. I can't recall anything other than than um, the Linda Cortil case that way either. So, right, that's something that I would really have to to study the questionnaires for to find out uh, if the person who uh, is living in an urban area uh, was taken in front of a witness. And that's one of the questions I asked, but I didn't look for correlating information between the two. It might be interesting to take a look. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess I'd be asking you to speculate here, but um, how do you think that happens? How do you think, um, you know, people would be able to be taken from uh it I'm sure this isn't the only Manhattan uh, abduction that's been reported uh people being taken from urban areas uh or or large suburban areas without being seen well you know the 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 craft has to have the capability of becoming invisible mm-hmm. and we know that the ETs seem to have that capability too. So many people report that there are uh, light orbs or balls, maybe baseball size uh, balls of light in their homes or in their apartments, and they almost like a bubble popping. They they very rapidly expand into ET. So there's something going on with that technology that almost seems paranormal to us in the sense of being a ghost or something like that. Mm -hmm. It seems that they're able, they've harnessed that kind of technology, that knowledge, so that they're capable of doing this just the way uh, they can uh, cause the vibration, vibrational rate of the human body and the solid surface to, to vibrate at the same frequency so that matter can pass through matter. Uh, so they're, you know, probably hundreds or thousands of years more advanced than us in her in their technological and scientific capabilities. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you talk about the orb thing because I've even heard uh, at least a theory by one 
a very popular uh, ghost hunter. He's on some of the TV shows where, and he doesn't like to, to talk about UFOs and ETs much because he's a ghost guy, but uh, he says he feels that some of the orbs they see uh, are, when they see balls of light, that some of these things he thinks are not just ghosts flying around, but uh, he feels possibly extraterrestrials are able to turn into a ball of light and travel around. Yes, absolutely. That's That uh, is the report that I have heard are, are very consistent with that. Mm-hmm. Yes, they, it is ETs inside this ball of light. Wow, that's interesting. So I, I guess moving on to another really interesting, well, your whole um, study is pretty interesting, but conscious recall, and this is kind of contrary to the whole sleep paralysis idea, um, and it's something that those who... Um, study sleep paralysis kind of don't address and you were able to show here which is a lot of people that they consciously recall the events that take place oh i skipped something but we'll come back to it absolutely uh 88 percent stated that their abduction memories were consciously recalled and I knew from uh, Bud Hopkins, John Max, and David Jacobs statistics that it was in the 30 to 40 percent range. 88 percent was really a startling figure and highly statistically significant. 66 percent said that they consciously recalled an unconventional craft at less than a thousand feet to them prior to the abduction. Hmm. And 56% said that they consciously recalled the observation of non-human entities immediately prior to their abduction. And 76% said that they were not alone when they were taken. And 62% of of those said that the, uh, the witness, they had witnesses who also recalled this experience. So that really kind of uh, blew <laughs> my mind in a sense because uh, the percentage is far higher than we're read, led to believe. Mm-hmm. Right, and and I think the problem is is uh, that just people don't do the kind of important work like you've done here um, to find out what these numbers actually are, and uh, so. You know, again, that's why this is so great. But, the, yeah, did, were those numbers surprising to you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I They were much higher than I had anticipated. It's interesting, and, though, too, as I was going to say that it does match, however, uh, Betty and Barney's experience a bit, too, because at least part of their experience they remembered. Um, oh, they remembered everything except for... Uh, the abduction on the craft itself. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that it's uh, been played a little bit differently, but I have evidence that they remembered everything except for being on that craft. Mm-hmm. So this kind of fits along with their experience. Um, a lot of this does, really. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's really fascinating. Um, and even, I guess, if you think of another... Uh, what it came to mind when you said uh, 
the 66% that consciously recalled observing the craft uh, prior. Uh, it made me think of Travis Walton because that's uh, what happened in his case. He consciously remembered, you know, of course, there were many witnesses to the craft at first. And he even remembers when he was dropped off the craft flying off. Yes, absolutely. The Casey County, Kentucky case was the same. The Allagash case was mm. the same. So many historical cases have uh, had close encounters mm-hmm. prior to the abduction. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Allagash one is a great one. Uh, luckily, those guys uh, were at a uh, MUFON, or no, it was a UFO Congress several years ago, five, six years ago, I think, that I got to be at and uh, meet them. And, you know, they kind of remind me of Travis Walton in a way, in that they're just these real down-to-earth, regular guys, and their story doesn't change over the years. Uh, just fascinating. They have no idea what to make of it. But here Absolutely. again, like you said. I know them. Very nice guys. And it started with with a sighting. Yes. So. Yes. Out fishing. And, and, you know, here you are. You're in an external environment. You're out camping or fishing or driving. And, uh, and you're picked up. Mm-hmm. Now, one difference, actually, with the Allagash case from these other famous cases we're talking about, and actually I was going to ask you about in this one statistic you had here, was that um, 76 indicated percent indicated they were not alone when they were taken. Uh, however, at least, uh, well, not the case in Barney Hill, but in the case of Travis Walton, and, and I know in the case of a lot of others, Typically, one person is taken as opposed to multiples. Is that correct? Uh, not necessarily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not necessarily. You know, I'm thinking of the Casey County, Kentucky case, for example. Mona Stafford, Elaine Thomas, and Louise Smith were taken, all three of them. Um, also, uh, an investigation that Walter Webb did on uh, an abduction in Vermont, uh, a counter at Buff Ledge, there were two taken. Uh, Charlie Hickson and Calvin Parker, two. So uh, in some cases, two are taken, and in other cases, it's just one. And it seems to follow genetic lines as well. So maybe initially, there might have been, say, maybe three taken, but for some reason, only one or two continued to be revisited, and if they had children, then the children were taken as well. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. Because in the Allagash, it was multiples. With Betty and Barney Hill, it was both of them. So, if you're, so it may make people hesitant of maybe going on a tra- camping trip with an abductee because um, they may. Uh, pick you up as well to check you out, huh? They might be in for the thrill of their lives. <laughs> right. Although I know some instances where people go out on camping trips with uh, abductees per- on purpose yes. to try to experience <laughs> something. So some There are a lot of people who have told me they would love to be taken. Mm-hmm. I really can't understand why, but I guess they're hoping for a very positive experience. Hmm. Well, what you had just said kind of segues to maybe I kind of skipped this section, but it's maybe better that I did because we can come back to 
um, a couple of the questions that you had uh, found some interesting stuff also is that uh, pretty much the majority of the answers as far as the people were saying as to how many times they had been taken, most felt uh, 10 or more. Yes, absolutely. Um, they felt that they had been taken for the first time as children. Um, some of them were outside playing. I get report after report hmm. of a group of children who are out in a park, out in the woods, out playing in a field, and and they are taken as children. Um, and then they are taken time and time again throughout their lifetime. Most people indicate to me that they're taken at least once a year. Wow. And like you said, because I think that was something startling that I had found, because um, I was skeptical of the whole abduction thing, like I said, when I started to investigate. Then I had people come to me who said that they had felt they had these experiences. So I checked out those cases, many of whom really seemed to be genuine. And I found that in every single one of these cases... Like you had said, you know, it was multiple times. It was throughout their life, kind of like they were tagged. And like you had said, you know, typically, well, almost, I think, every time with any case that I thought was was seemed credible, a parent was taken um, and uh, a child. Yes. Yes, they're following genetic lines. Mm-hmm. And uh, they also seem to be uh, conducting genetic experiments on some of those parents, reproductive experiments, and perhaps the uh, the fetus that they're carrying has been altered in some way. Uh, many experiencers have very gifted children. Mm-hmm. That might be surprising to you, too, and that wasn't on... Uh, this survey, but uh, it will be on another one, I think. Okay, yeah, that's very interesting. I mean, I mean, when you hear from uh, some people what kids say about some of this stuff, um, like I remember one story that really, and I've just heard this a lot, but uh, and you've probably heard similar stories, but uh, one that really sticks with me because the uh, friend of mine was just so shocked by it is uh, a co-worker. And when, you know, I usually don't share my side life here with uh, co-workers. But when she did find out about it, and we talked a lot about it, she went home and she told her kids, and one of her young sons said, oh yeah, Mom, the aliens are coming here because um, they put us here and we're an experiment, and they come back and they check on us once in a while. Mm Mm-hmm. And he was like, I think, seven years old. And Did it was she just... ask him where he got that information from? No, she was just so shocked. She she had never really asked that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, she, but that was something that really stuck with her. That she was just shocked to hear this because, of course, this is her kid who's usually just jumping on the couch and being goofy and then watching cartoons and just very right. matter matter of factly told her, "This is what's going on, Mom." Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, she'll have to ask him where he, he received that information from. Right. 
I think she was just a little too afraid to talk about that. Right. But I've heard other situations. Relieved situ- to hear that he heard it in school. Yeah. But it is surprising. I've heard other stories, and I'm sure you have, of these kids just articulating these these concepts regarding this kind of stuff. Um, yeah. With really advanced thinking compared to you know their age. Yes, absolutely. Uh, they seem to possess knowledge that uh, they have not been taught. Uh, they have psychic abilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're, they're intellectually gifted many times. So uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. It seems that uh, the, the ETs, at least the, the greys and the Nordics and the insectoids, uh, really have no intention of harming us. Uh, certainly, they've been taking humans for their experiments, which and and that is a, a violation of medical ethics. But they somehow feel that they have the right to do that, and uh, might even feel that they have created many of those that they that they do take hmm. that they're part of them. That's interesting, and that gets into the next section because at least it was my experience. Um, and then I used to work more with Dr. Leo Sprinkle because he was nearby, and, and uh, um, I, I thought it was important because he was always focused on helping people through the emotional aspect of what they were experiencing so they can you know, um, alleviate the negative emotion and move on with their lives. But yeah, I certainly... There were a lot of people who were, no one was completely negative towards what happened. There was one gentleman who was extremely fearful. Mm-hmm. But he would tell me, I don't feel bad because it, I get this sense that they're doing their job. And that's they're just doing their job. And it's what they're supposed to do. And they don't hate me. And um, the only thing that I he didn't like was the, how scary it was it can be very frightening uh when uh you you find yourself on a craft on a table and you're helpless uh it's extremely frightening uh if you're in your home and, and perhaps you're lying in bed and you you realize there's a presence in the room and suddenly you're paralyzed and you're taken very very rapidly toward a craft so certain things can be very frightening, and I think, but but they're being kind by uh, erasing our memories, mm-hmm. and also they they tend to always have uh, one escort who uh, I call it an escort, um, a being that accompanies a particular person time and time again and comforts that person. It's sort of a one-on-one that uh, an experiencer has with an ET. Mhm. Right. And uh you know, uh getting into that emotional part cuz you did ask questions around the emotion that yes. a lot of people did say they were fearful, but uh almost as many said uh they were very curious. Yes, yes, that's true. And what happened, I think, is that they were fearful for years, and then they finally overcame that fear. And it's interesting that many of those who have overcome the fear did so through 
hypnotic regressions. So they, they had regressive hypnosis over and over again. I'm not talking about just one hit-and-run kind of session that might leave you more traumatized than you were before the session, but several sessions. And they come to realize generally that they're not being harmed, that these individuals are giving them messages that cause them to feel that they really and truly care about them. And uh, so I think that it's that kind of message that causes uh, the fear to subside and for people to be able to go on with their lives and, uh, and to develop a curiosity about what is happening to them. Mm-hmm. Now, some researchers feel that this uh, feeling of, of, of love and comfort is disingenuous in that it's just a trick to uh, calm the, the human down. Um, yes, um, many researchers believe that, and, and many abduction experiencers do as well. But there are others who who feel that the ETs are genuine mm-hmm. and who feel a part of that they are a part of them. Mm-hmm. And would you say that's the majority? Uh, you know, that wasn't <laughs> it wasn't uh, something that I could analyze statistically. So I really don't know. It's more anecdotal. Okay. And uh, an interesting one, actually, also, how do you feel after the experience? Uh, mostly either angry or just tired and exhausted. Yes, yes, and and generally a combination of the two because people's lives are disrupted by this. You know, if you have a job and you have to get up and go to work and, you know, it's 6 or 7 o'clock in the morning and you've been abducted and you've spent your your night on a craft and and you haven't gotten enough sleep or if you are so fearful that you're not able to sleep uh it really has a huge impact upon your health and well-being and it can make you very angry mhm now on the other part of uh the emotional questions that you asked this was really interesting i thought you asked about kind of how their moods are overall throughout their lives. And it looks like um, fairly consistent with the control for the most part, except for sad. Uh, Yes. More people reported, more abductees reported being sad. Yes, more abductees did report being sad, uh, but more of the control group reported frequent mood swings. Hmm. So that was interesting. The abduction experiences moods were were fairly stable, but um, a, a percentage of the abduction experiencers said that they felt sad, and and that's really <laughs> too bad. Um, you know, maybe related to this experience, but sometimes. Uh, they reported that they had a history of childhood abuse. Mm. And and those who had the childhood abuse tended to feel sadness plus have more mood swings than the others. 
and this persisted throughout their lifetime. So, um, you know, it's very unfortunate and, and tragic in a sense, but uh, a small percentage of the group did have those characteristics. Mm-hmm. So then you asked about uh, sleep patterns. Yes. And uh, you found people did have problems falling asleep and staying asleep. Um, was it more so the abductees than the control? Uh, yes. Well, actually, I did. That question was not on the control group. Oh, okay. Uh, on on that questionnaire, it was just an oversight on my part. I'm angry with myself over that, and I'm going to have to test that uh, on in another study that I do. I guess it, initially it didn't jump out at me as being statistically significant, but it ended up being very significant. 74% of the abduction experiencer group had difficulty falling asleep, and 71% stated that they had difficulty staying asleep. And you know, then you have to ask, why is this? Is it because of the fear, or do they have a sleep disorder? Uh, it, it's particularly interesting if somebody has difficulty uh, staying asleep because that could be a sign of depression if you're waking up uh, in the middle of the night or very early and not able to get back to sleep. But so many people simply wrote to me, well, when those ETs come and take me, they're returning me uh, very early in the morning or in the middle of the night, and, and I can't get back to sleep. I'm so upset. So And, and many people stated that they weren't able to sleep because uh, they feared an abduction experience. Uh, but others stated that, that it was unrelated to their emotional state, too. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a mixed bag, and, and what I'm telling you here is anecdotal. Mm-hmm. Well, and um, I guess on this, since we're in the emotional part, you know, even recently I was speaking with Elaine Douglas and... Um, in PTSD, a lot of times people don't relate the symptoms to the trauma, I guess, mm-hmm. um, whereas they're they're showing symptoms or they're experiencing these things and they don't know why and they don't yeah. realize it's related to a certain trauma. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's some of that happening? Well, that would be a symptom of post-traumatic stress disorder. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it, it would be. Um, The one interesting finding I had, but the percentage was so low, is that uh, it was only 3 out of 50 reported that they do not have fear of abduction any longer, and they were also able to sleep through the night without a problem. So I suppose if you can overcome your fear, you're more likely to be able to sleep as long as you're not being taken on that particular night. Mm-hmm. So getting into physiological responses, some interesting things here, especially with starting off with uh, implants, in that uh, you asked if people felt they they had an implant and uh, half felt that they did. Is that, am I reading that correct? 
Yes, yes. I believe it was 52% uh, believed that they did have an implant. And then, and just to follow up, just because I think this is related, and I kind of want to talk about these two overall in general, the other interesting one, because this is something I find fascinating about some of the cases I looked at that seemed credible, you asked if they had awoken with unexplained marks on their body. And uh, at the abductee group uh, said yes uh, at something like 83%, whereas, of course, the controls, uh, most of them said no. They hadn't had that experience. Yes, absolutely. So that was highly significant. The abduction experiencers have marks uh, from patterned black and blue marks on their bodies to uh, what appears to be finger marks. Now, I've received photographs from abduction experiencers and reports as well of three uh, pressure marks uh, where they've been returned, and I have photographs, which is really very important to me. Um, they've been returned with three long finger marks on the ca- on each calf on of their leg or on their upper arms, and um, in every case, it has been a woman who has reported this to me. Uh, so I found that very very interesting. Um, of course, there are also puncture wounds, uh, reports from men primarily of puncture wounds into the chest area, perhaps into the area of the thymus gland. Hmm. Of course, uh, bloody noses are reported, um, scoop marks. We've heard about scoop marks for uh, probably 30 or 40 years now. Uh, so, uh, and and the sunburn kind of rash on the body as well. So abduction experiencers uh, receive these kinds of marks and can't explain them, cannot uh, remember anything from the previous day that might have caused this kind of thing. They're recalling uh, at least part of an abduction experience and when they wake up or when they're returned and they're wide awake, uh, they find these marks on their bodies. A lot of them look for marks immediately after they're returned. Mm-hmm. And I find this area interesting because I think that this is some of the most important area areas of, of this experience because this is physical evidence. That, yes, uh, absolutely. And there's the opportunity, too, if, if someone can do this, uh, to possibly get some scientific evidence of uh, something unusual going on here. Yes, I am uh, collecting a catalog of photographs. So if anyone who is listening has photographs of the, this evidence, I would certainly appreciate it uh, if you would send it a copy of it to me. And something else that I'm asking every abduction experiencer who's listening is to please... Uh, keep a diary or a journal and write down your experiences as soon as you're returned. Check out your body. See if you have any of these marks. If you do, photograph them and keep them with your journal. That's very important for the collection of evidence. 
Now, have you ever ran into a case where, uh, and I think you asked some questions along these lines, where a person who had these physiological effects went to a doctor who looked at them and confirmed um, or was unable to explain them? Uh, yes. There are individuals who uh, I have a medical report from uh, one individual right now. Uh, and it's actually going to be in my upcoming book that will be released next May. But uh, So I'm not going to go into great detail here. Mm -hmm. But there has been uh, physiological evidence discovered by physicians. Also, uh, in this report that I wrote, uh, I talked about individuals who have, uh, the, the, their physician has found scar tissue in their nasal cavity that couldn't be explained, and one wrote that there was actually a metallic object in the nasal cavity. Wow, great. See, that's because I think that's what's really important is collecting that sort of evidence. Um, so you can demonstrate that, yes, doctors have looked at these things and said that these were unexplainable. Um, yes. And that's what kind of, you know, frustrates me with the implant area because I think we're at a bit of an impasse where uh, there, there needs to be more work on these uh, possible implants that have been removed because uh, if they are real, of course, then uh, there are there's research that can be done to to show that they are something strange. Um, and so hopefully that happens more in the future because this is where the real pay dirt is. I mean, this is strong evidence that uh, it's physical beyond anecdotal, which uh, yes, absolutely. It's, it's so difficult important. to find. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always felt, you know, even though abductions, of course, are more fringe and harder to swallow for people... It, they allow for um, the possibility of physical evidence more so than uh, a sighting. Yes, they do. The uh, physiological evidence on the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, absolutely. So, and I guess moving on from some of the physiological stuff, although there was something really interesting here, and I, I was wondering actually um, how the question even got on there, but you found that... Uh, the abductees, as opposed to the control, uh, by a large amount, had a craving for salt. Yes, and <laughs> that was pretty amazing to me. Uh, that I didn't come up with that question. That Denise asked me to put it uh, on the questionnaire, and so you know we we did, and and I hadn't anticipated that we would have uh, a high percentage of uh, individuals who reported that, but we absolutely did. Yeah, that's a very strange one, huh? Yes. So, and then some of the other things, like uh, this was interesting, a um, uh, higher sensitivity to light? Yes, that was another one. We had asked four questions, actually, um, about sensitivity, um, and and the sensitivity to light was the the statistically significant one. The other ones were more acute hearing, that was only 28%, more allergies, 36%, more fluctuation in mood, 34%. But it was uh, sensitivity to light that really uh, drew the greatest response. And then, unfortunately, I mean, a couple of other uh unfortunate 
side effects seem to be they also reported uh, much more than the uh, controls, more migraine headaches, and for women, more genealogical or uh, problems. Gynecological problems. Gynecological, problem. genealogical. Yeah. That yeah. too. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, so that was really quite significant, and um, 30% stated that they had migraine headaches. That's far, far higher than the national average. Also, chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. Hmm. 38% of the participants in this study have a formal medical diagnosis of chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome. This is not a psychological disorder. This is physiological. Um, It's debilitating, and uh, it strikes less than 1% of the general population. It's very high among abduction experiencers, and I wish that the medical community would look into uh, these factors. Yeah, that's that's very troublesome. I mean, not all of these areas are. It's unfortunate that um, they seem to have these continued um, health issues. Yes, absolutely. Now, do these, uh, over time, uh, do these kind of subside or or do they continue? They continue. Oh, no, that's... that's... When you have chronic fatigue and immune dysfunction syndrome, it waxes and wanes. Mm -hmm. So uh, it can go on for 20, 30, 40 years. Now, sometimes um, if people learn how to modify their lifestyle so that uh, they get a lot of rest, they don't overexert themselves, they won't have these flu-like symptoms. Um, But any time that they uh, will really overdo, the symptoms can reappear. Fevers, headaches, um, cognitive difficulties, memory problems, uh, ambulation difficulty. It can be a disabling disease. People are confined to wheelchairs for periods of time who have people become totally disabled with this. Ugh. Well, there's another reason I don't want to be abducted. Yes. <laughs> that That's very sad. It is. So, and then you get into asking uh, questions about psychic phenomena and uh, abduct or uh, paranormal and things like this and uh, I guess one of the questions you ask and uh, you know a lot of the abductees said that they have witnessed or experienced paranormal activity in their home what did you define as paranormal activity are these guys seeing ghosts or or Bigfoots or, or what's going on you know, I didn't want to give any leading questions. Okay. So I only stated paranormal activity um, and just to, to find out what kind of responses I would receive to that. Um, and I did that on purpose. So I'm thinking of psi phenomena. And uh, people who were in the abduction group um, talked about, of course, the light orbs that we I mentioned earlier. Also, uh, things simply lifting off shelves and flying at them wow. in their household. And usually this occurs 
immediately the day or, or two days after the abduction experience itself. Really? Very strange. Also, doors opening and closing on their own, lights turning off and on on their own, computers malfunctioning immediately after an abduction, watches malfunctioning. Some abduction experiences simply cannot wear a watch. Um, another something else that was mentioned was a toilet uh, flushing on its own. So it's that sort of thing. Um, and 88% of the abduction experiencers reported these events going on in their homes. Now, I compared that to the, the uh, other group, to the, the uh, non-abduction experiencer group, and they reported more ghost-like activity. Now, I was really surprised that I had a pretty high percentage, I thought, coming from that group um, because initially it was very, very small. And then I realized I had done uh, a radio show. It was on a paranormal radio program that did a lot of shows on ghost-like activity in people's houses. And I had a huge response after that show. So I think that it skewed my data. Um, but So I took a look at the things that they were reporting. And they were reporting more ghost-like activity, um, shadow people, spirits, cloud mists, um, strange sounds, strange odors, cold spots in their homes. And I didn't receive that kind of information from most of the abduction experiencers. So that psi uh, phenomenon, or psi phenomena, I should say, tends to be different uh, for the... Uh, the spirit haunted houses as opposed to the houses where abduction experience is taking place. Mm -hmm. Now, do you feel that that, that uh, what they're experiencing, um, uh, do you have any ideas? Like somehow maybe they're still undergoing some kind of psychological testing by the, the beings who are coming in and, and messing with them? I really, you know, that that is a really good question, and I'm attempting to uh, collect more information before I can even uh, mm -hmm. present a hypothesis about that. I have wondered if it has something to do with the technology that the the ETs or the science that the ETs use in coming into our environment and taking us into their environment. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but who knows? It's yeah, so <laughs> it, hard. it's very very interesting to me uh, because um, some of this happened uh, in my aunt's home and in my own childhood home, uh, mostly after Betty's abduction experience. I don't remember any of it occurring when I was a young child, but this started up in my late teens and, and was going on when I was away at college as well. Wow. So not surprising, because we, we pretty much know this, that people have said that they had uh, telepathic kind of communication with these, these beings during their abduction. But something that I think is surprising, that uh, people had said that they had uh, developed psychic abilities and or uh, healing abilities after the abduction events uh, at a large percentage. I thought that was very interesting. 
Yes, I did as well. Um, and it's just fascinating that such a um, 79% said that they developed new psychic abilities after an abduction. There was a smaller percentage who said that they had always had psychic abilities, mm. uh, and they didn't know if it was because they were uh, taken when they were young children and developed those abilities then, or if they had simply been born with those abilities. But um, very high percentage there. And were you able to speak with any of these people who felt they, they had developed healing abilities, and how did they discover that, or how does this work? I think that they just, uh, and I didn't speak to many specifically about that, mm -hmm. but it seemed like they just sensed that they had this new gift hmm. and tried it out and it worked. Yeah, very interesting. So I guess finally getting into your miscellaneous category uh, to see if you found something interesting here. Um, first, uh, blood type. Did you find anything uh, significant there with the blood type? Yes, and I would like to actually do further study on blood types as well. Um, 29 in the group um, responded to the questions, so not everyone responded. Hmm. Uh, there were 50 in, in the abduction experience or group, but many did not know their blood type. Um, but of that 29, 59% said that they were type A. Um, and 34% uh, and said that they were type O. Um, so... You know, I don't know what what all of this means, but I found a, a much higher percentage of negative, Rh negative blood among these abduction experiences, and, and this has been reported in other studies as well. Hmm. So it simply confirms uh, what the findings of those other studies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... And I can't blame those people. I always forget my blood type. I don't know why. Like, even right now, I can't remember what it is. Something mm -hmm. important to know, though, huh? Yes, it is. And then finally, a, a lot of people who uh, experienced electronic equipment malfunctioning uh, prior to their abduction experiences, which I think you mentioned earlier. Yes, and um, that was not prior to, but immediately after mm -hmm. their abduction experiences where... Um, Yes, their computers would malfunction, uh, watches, the, sometimes the, uh, the hands on the watch would spin, light bulbs blowing out. Um, you might uh, not have just one appliance blow out, but uh, every appliance you touch that particular morning blows out or, or burns out. Um, light bulb after light bulb blows out. It's that sort of thing. Wow. Wow. So, I mean, I think we reviewed just about everything. I think uh, one thing I, I didn't mention in the physiological area, that one of the other uh, health effects or, or issues, you, you talked about the scabbing, but uh, people experiencing nosebleeds more um, than abductees experiencing nosebleeds more than the control group. Um, oh, yes, absolutely. There was a much higher percentage and uh, it occurred immediately after uh, an abduction experience. There would be blood on the pillow 
or the person would be returned with a, a nosebleed mm-hmm. much higher, much, much higher than the control group. Well, this is an incredibly interesting study. I think it's so... Uh, I just love uh, that there are people out there doing this sort of work because this is the kind of work that needs to be done. I mean, this is so important. And I think uh, what you've done here, you and Denise, is just such an incredible contribution. And uh, I think you said that there's uh, more to your study, that this is just the the first part of the study. Yes, this is the first part. Uh, The second part is on commonalities in abduction experiencers' descriptions of ET technology. Mm. So the only people who are able to fill this out are those who have a fairly clear memory of their experience, how they're procured, how they're taken on board the craft, what they observe on the craft, what kind of procedures they undergo. It's that sort of thing. So um, I'm waiting. I... uh, I have about, I believe, 28 uh, questionnaires returned to me right now. I would really like to get 50. So if there's anyone in the audience uh, listening who has this information, would you please go to my website at kathleen-marden.com. The questionnaire is there. There is also an informed consent form. And uh, I would certainly appreciate having that information so that Denise and I can finish the second part of our study. Right. That's exciting. That sounds really interesting. And this is great because, like I said, the only other study I remembered was Dr. Leo Sprinkles. And his was more of the, along the lines of their kind of perceptions and their psychological makeup. I think he was able to demonstrate that these abductees uh, weren't prone to fantasy any more than any other person in the, in the population, uh, which is, of, of course, an important uh, thing to point out. And uh, one thing that always sticks with me from his study is that a lot of people, after their experiences, believed in reincarnation much more so than, than prior, or people without the experiences. That was kind of weird. Yes. But well, uh, I think that uh-huh. people uh, obtain a lot of knowledge when they're on these crafts and... Uh, whether they can remember it or not, uh, they seem to have, suddenly have, information that they didn't have before. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this uh, with us. I think this study is just incredible. So, uh, you know, like you said, you can find the study also at Kathleen-Martin.com, and uh, there's a, it's in a PDF. And uh, just like a lot of the best, research out there, you know, and uh, so people can't argue that you're trying to make a buck. You know, they can go download anything from uh, this report for free. That's correct. You mm-hmm. can. And I funded this myself. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you so much for your work. This is really, really great stuff. And I well, think I find it's... it very satisfying to to be searching for the answers and finding some of them. So it's been my pleasure and my pleasure to be on your show as well. Thanks for having me. All right. Thank you. Kathleen is one cool lady. So remember Kathleen-Martin.com. Go there, download the study, read it, get knowledge, 
be smart and learn more. So thank you all very much for listening to the show. It's been an absolute pleasure to visit with you and spend more time with you. And guess what? Don't be sad. Don't be sad. I know some of you are like, oh, no, the show's over. We got next week. We're coming at you with another guest. We're going to have more fun. So until then, be cool.